This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for downloading this podcast of Rear Vision, the show that brings you the stories behind the news headlines. Has the gloss gone off Canada's charismatic Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau? Canada's Prime Minister is facing growing pressure to resign over a political scandal that could jeopardise his chances at this year's election. Justin Trudeau denies that inappropriate pressure was placed on the Attorney-General to abandon criminal proceedings against a party donor. It wasn't an apology, but it was as far as Justin Trudeau was prepared to go. Almost every day as Prime Minister, I learn new things. So I can tell you without a doubt that I have taken and will continue to take many lessons from these recent days and weeks. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been struggling to contain the biggest political challenge of his career, one that's cost him two top ministers, the country's most senior bureaucrat and his closest senior advisor. On this Rear Vision, we'll look at the life of Canada's charismatic leader. He's an avowed feminist, advocate for refugees and Indigenous rights, celebrated by many as a bastion of progressive liberalism in an age of rising right-wing populism. But first, what is it that's cast a shadow on this public image? Now known as the SNC-Lavalin affair, the story was broken by Robert Fife, chief political reporter for Canada's Globe and Mail. The Prime Minister is in deep political trouble because there is a large Quebec multinational company called SNC-Lavalin, which is facing bribery and fraud charges relating to its business dealings in Libya, basically paying off the Gaddafi family for construction jobs. And this company is connected to the Liberal Party. In fact, at one point had been found guilty of funneling $100,000 to the party. When the Liberals came into power, they pressed them to create a new law called a deferred prosecution so that they could avoid a criminal trial for the bribery and fraud. They did that. They put this new law in through an ominous budget bill, which is quite unusual. And then they lobbied the Attorney General and Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybaugh to grant the company a deferred prosecution. She refused to do so because the Director of Public Prosecutions had said that the trial should go ahead. And there was intense political pressure on her from September to December of 2018. And she continually refused. And then suddenly she was removed as Justice Minister and demoted to Veterans Affairs. The story broke and it's led to the resignation of two cabinet ministers, including Ms. Wilson-Raybaugh, the Prime Minister's most trusted and closest advisor and Principal Secretary, Gerald Butts, as well as the Clerk of the Privy Council. I'm not sure you have the same system in Australia, but it's Canada's top civil servant has resigned. It's a typically Canadian scandal in that there's no sex involved, no money that's changed hands, no personal advancement. James Bickerton is Professor of Political Science at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. In many countries, I suppose, the scandal would be seen as not really much of a scandal at all. SNC-Lavalin is a major construction firm located in Montreal. That's where its headquarters are, but with uh, employment across Canada. And they have performed a lot of government work, and they constantly lobby government for work, and they have contracts overseas. Well, 
When Muammar Gaddafi was still the dictator in Libya, SNC-Lavalin got involved in, in bribery and, and other kinds of misdeeds in order to secure contracts over there. And the Canadian government is uh, in the process of bringing a prosecution against SNC-Lavalin for those illegal activities overseas. There is a law in Canada now, deferred prosecution, and, and many countries have this law, which allows the company to negotiate some other penalties besides criminal prosecution. And it's up to the director of prosecutions to decide whether or not to allow the company to opt for this deferred prosecution. In the case of Canada, that decision that was made by the director of prosecutions was not to allow that. And there was considerable pressure exerted on Jody Wilson-Raybould who was the Justice Minister and Attorney General, to direct her staff to allow SNC-Lavalin to have a deferred prosecution because they would lose the right to bid on federal contracts for 10 years if they didn't, and there could be major job losses, or they would be the target of a takeover by some other company because of their falling stock prices. So essentially, that's the, the gist of it. The Attorney General felt that she was being inappropriately pressured to go down this road, prime ministerial staff was involved, as well as others. We'll come back and look at the consequences of this scandal later. One of the intriguing things about Justin Trudeau is that he has an international profile. Leaders of middling powers like Australia rarely make much of a splash outside their own countries, and that's true of Canadian prime ministers too, except, of course, Justin's father, Pierre Trudeau. Canada's highly unorthodox bachelor prime minister, 51-year-old Pierre Elliott Trudeau, seems the dream politician. He's a model of statesmanship with a quick wit and a parliamentary presence, a man who plays and teases. He's at home on the water in an Eskimo kayak. He shoots and dances, paddles and munches and bikes, surfs and whirls and jumps clowns around to the amusement of his fans. He's one of those men who does most everything well. He has a stable of lovely ladies, but none holds his attention for long. But shortly after becoming Prime Minister in 1968, he met his future wife Margaret, the daughter of a former Liberal Cabinet Minister, while on holiday in Tahiti. Professor Nelson Wiseman is the director of the Canadian Studies Program at the University of Toronto. At the turn of the 1970s, Pierre Trudeau, who had recently become Prime Minister a year or two before and was a bachelor, was vacationing. At that vacation was also the daughter of that liberal fisheries minister. Her name, Margaret Sinclair, she studied political science at a university, Simon Fraser University, in the greater Vancouver area, was at the time, I believe, 21 years old. They struck up a romance. They got married. Trudeau at that time was, I think, 50 years of age, 50 or 51. It caught the imagination, not just of Canadians, but internationally. Trudeau had gotten a lot of attention when he became the prime minister. He was dating women like Barbara Streisand. At one meeting at Buckingham Palace with the Queen, he slid down the banister. He sometimes came to Parliament when he was the Minister of Justice before he became Prime Minister in sandals 
and a scarf. He drove a convertible Mercedes. You know, that was an exceptional car at that time in the late 60s. And he seemed, Pierre Trudeau, to capture something of the zeitgeist of the late 1960s. He was really unknown in English Canada and not that well known actually in French Canada either. So he just burst onto the scene. He captured the attention of the media and the public. He was an intellectual, a constitutional lawyer, very bright, and he became selected by the Liberal Party membership, the prime minister, leader of the party, de facto prime minister. And then a year or two after that, he met Margaret Trudeau. A couple of years after that, Justin Trudeau was born. And the name Justin is interesting because the basis of Trudeau's winning the leadership of the Liberal Party is he talked about striving for a just society. And that was also the term he used when he and the Liberals won a majority government in the 1968 election. So Justin fit with that theme. It was a troubled marriage and broke down quite publicly in 1977 when Justin was five years old. The substantial differences in age came through and their different interests. So the romance started to fade. Margaret Trudeau showed up in Toronto in 1976 and went to a famous little nightclub here at which the Rolling Stones were performing, not officially on the program, but they showed up after they did their big performance. And uh, Margaret Trudeau was taken back to the Rolling Stones Hotel and spent the evening with one of the Rolling Stones, Ron Wood. Uh, This obviously outraged Pierre. And, you know, she went down to New York. She was dancing at uh, Studio 54, which was a hot venue at that time. And clearly she was very unhappy. After his parents separated, Justin and his two younger brothers lived with their father at the Prime Minister's official residence. So when Pierre Trudeau travelled, sometimes he would take his eldest son. That was Justin. So he, he met Nelson Mandela as a kid. The Prime Minister's residence is known as 24 Sussex. That's an address. Cabinet ministers would come over, visiting dignitaries and so on. So Justin and his younger brothers would be exposed to this, although Justin was older. So he was familiar with the surface of political interactions. Although he was born in Montreal and went to school in Montreal at McGill University, he then moved out when he became an adult, after he graduated, to British Columbia and became a drama teacher at a high school. The father was a constitutional lawyer one of Quebec's leading intellectuals. The son was a drama teacher who had a bachelor's degree. You know, we never heard much about Justin Trudeau. And then when his father died, his eulogy got a fair bit of attention. And at that time, he was still quite young. He was in his very early 20s. People said, oh, you know, he could potentially become the liberal leader. Pierre Elliott Trudeau died on September 28, 2000. At his funeral, national and international leaders filled the pews of Montreal's Notre Dame Basilica. Thousands lined the streets. Millions more watched the service live on television as Justin Trudeau stepped up to the podium to eulogize his famous father. He left politics in 84, but he came back for Meech. He came back to remind us 
of who we are and what we're all capable of. But he won't be coming back anymore. Justin Trudeau had always maintained a connection with the Liberal Party and in 2008, with the party in opposition, successfully ran for Parliament in a marginal Montreal seat. In the following elections in 2011, the Liberal Party was thrashed, falling to third-party standing in the House of Commons. Trudeau, citing his young family, was initially reluctant to stand as leader, but in the 2013 leadership contest, he put his name forward. He was really overwhelmed with appeals from Liberal Party members and changed his mind and decided to run. He was really looked upon as the saviour, the potential saviour of the Liberal Party because his name recognition was so great and there really weren't any other strong contenders lining up for the party. He won it as well in a walking away, 80% of the votes he gathered on the first ballot. It was the most open leadership convention we've ever had in Canada with the largest number of people voting. It was one member, one vote, and they even opened it up beyond members. Anyone could vote who expressed uh, like-mindedness with the Liberal Party. So it was almost like a primary, as the Americans have, an open primary. And so we got a much larger electorate than we usually have to select the leader, and he won 80% of the, of the votes cast. So he was the overwhelming choice of Liberals and Liberal sympathizers in that 2013 leadership convention. It was really a series of events leading to the the collapse of support for the party that created this kind of desperate situation into which he stepped as possibly the young saviour of the party. His opportunity to settle that question came in the 2015 election. There were a few slips betwixt cup and lip, as Shakespeare said. There was questions raised about his level of seriousness, his, his intellectual capability, the fact that he, he didn't seem to be very well briefed on issues. He was mainly running on charisma and personality. There was attempts to cast aspersions on his maturity, his masculinity even. And he did a couple of things to reverse those images of himself. He actually challenged conservatives to put somebody up in a boxing match against him. And eventually a conservative senator agreed to who had a some sort of black belt in judo or something. And Trudeau actually, this very high-profile charity event, actually won that boxing match. And strange to say, it did probably help his image in, in some way because his problem seemed to be that he was kind of a lightweight or he appeared as kind of an intellectual lightweight and maybe a bit of a party guy, but he performed very well in the campaign was very effective in the debates, the televised debates of the leaders, and really proved to be a magnet when he would campaign at different places in the country. You know, I, I remember going to events myself where the room would be packed in anticipation of him arriving, especially amongst women and youth. He was an extremely attractive figure. And that was borne out in the election itself, where the, the turnout went up quite sharply and especially went up amongst young people in Canada. So there was a bit of an Obama effect that he had in terms of drawing voters to the polls that had not been voting previously. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National, RN.
We're looking at the life of Canada's charismatic Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, as he struggles with a political scandal that's cost him both senior colleagues and some of his political gloss. In an extraordinary result, Canada's Liberal Party has decisively won the country's parliamentary elections. Justin Trudeau has followed in his father's footsteps, the late Pierre Trudeau, to become Prime Minister. And Trudeau's government promises to return a touch of glamour, youth and charisma to Ottawa. Trudeau mania is back. He's a rock star political leader who delivered an upbeat campaign message. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Justin Trudeau has brought his party back from the political wilderness to form a majority government. He's now taking his young family to the Prime Minister's residence, the house he grew up in. It was a stunning victory in 2015. The Liberals went from 34 to 148 seats. The new Prime Minister came in as a feminist, an advocate for refugees and Indigenous rights, convinced of the threat from man-made climate change. How well has the performance matched the rhetoric? When he won the election, he did construct a cabinet which was 50% women. And when queried about that, where he's introducing the cabinet, why he decided to have 50% women in the cabinet, he simply replied, because it's 2015. And that remark has often been repeated to show that he represented a new generation. He described himself as a, as a feminist prime minister and as a very strong advocate of women's issues. He basically said that the relationship with Indigenous people is the most important relationship for his government, and he has accepted all of the recommendations of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a, a major commission looking into the residential schools' history in Canada and the treatment of Native people in Canada. And he did legalize marijuana. It's now legal in Canada. For sure, he's described himself as a feminist. In fact, I would say that the strongest ministers, including Jody Wilson-Raybould and Miss Philpott, were all women. He has made a significant effort to try to deal with some of the serious social problems facing Canada's Indigenous people. We have many reserves where the conditions are honestly third world conditions and where they still have boiled water advisories. Billions of dollars that have been spent trying to deal with those issues. Certainly on climate change, Canada played, a, I think, a significant role in, in Paris on the climate change. And we brought in a carbon tax here, which is unpopular in some of the provinces. So he, he's tried to hold true to his principles of being a progressive. Having said that, this scandal has exposed some things that have hurt his credibility in that field. The loss of two women who are senior cabinet ministers has hurt his credibility and wanting to sort of shut them down. The other factor is that Miss Wilson Rabo is an Aboriginal leader, an Indigenous leader, and she has claimed that there's a lot of doublespeak, but not a lot of serious action in terms of serious reconciliation with Canada's First Nations. And there was a black member of parliament who has left the Liberal caucus, who earlier this month had said that the Prime Minister had yelled at her when she had told him that she'd planned not to run again. This is the same day that Jody Wilson-Raybaugh had resigned from Cabinet, and according to this woman, he yelled at her and, and said, you know, I can't 
lose two women of color on the same day, so don't announce anything right now. And the opposition parties, by the way, the women in the Conservative Party have been standing up in the House of Commons as a result of this and accusing the Prime Minister of being a fake feminist. So he is getting a hit on that. But in terms of public policy, I think it would be unfair to criticize him because I think he is largely trying to make a difference in that that regard. Will Canadians be comparing Justin Trudeau with his father? Joan Bryden is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Pierre Trudeau, Canadians have a very interesting response to him. I mean, there was sort of a very much a love-hate thing when he was Prime Minister, but historically, you know, if you look back now and you ask people, who do you think was the best Prime Minister and this kind of stuff, he invariably comes out on top. He's left a huge legacy in terms of the Charter of Rights. I think the way Canadians view themselves is very much in the Pierre Trudeau vision, in a sense, he's had a huge impact on the country. And so his son, I think, benefited from that initially. I mean, it was both good and bad for him because people would compare him and say, you're not your father, you're not up to his standard in some cases, and, and others would like him only because he was the son of the father they had admired. So he had a struggle to kind of establish himself as his own man who had his own ideas and his own way of doing things, which has been quite different than the way his father did things, I should say. You know, Justin Trudeau is a people person, and Pierre Trudeau never was. He hated the back-slapping, handshaking, baby-kissing aspect of politics, and he wasn't particularly good at it, even though back in, you know, 1968, when Trudeau-mania was at its height, he had women screaming and, you know, following around trying to get little pieces of his clothing and this kind of, you know, get kisses and this kind of stuff. He was really a very cerebral, philosophical sort of guy, whereas Justin is not. He loves the people aspect of politics. He loves meeting with people, talking with people, and he's very good at it. Looks them straight in the eye and gives comfort to those who need it and this kind of thing. And he's he's been very, very good at that kind of people politics, whereas his father was seen as being kind of autocratic. Justin Trudeau has taken some pains to portray himself as being more of a collegial person who invites comments and advice and so on. Now that, you know, some of this has come into question with people saying it's he's a good actor, but that's not the real him. Certainly this whole SNC-Lavalin business has really shone a spotlight on his whole feminist and indigenous reconciliation agendas that he set out for himself. There's a lot of other folks, including some indigenous leaders who are going, okay, so perhaps he is not the be-all and the end-all that one might have hoped, but it's still better than any of the alternatives because who else is going to put reconciliation as their top priority? And similarly, some of the women liberals are saying, well, okay, but you know, is there any other leader who is unabashedly feminist as Trudeau, even if he's having some trouble with some of his female cabinet ministers at the moment? Which, you know, frankly, as a woman myself, strikes as a bit of a double standard here, right? I mean, if these were two male colleagues, would we all be saying, got a gender issue with men? I don't think so. A progressive leader who's been fated like a rock star, Justin Trudeau now faces a possible election loss in October after just one term, with polls showing his popularity is sliding. A complete phony act of uh, fake sincerity 
and a Prime Minister who will readily trample the Constitution and the rule of law to win elections and to help his friends. The opposition has asked Canada's federal police to look into the matter, but no investigation has yet been confirmed. The consequences of the SNC-Lavalin affair won't be known until the elections in October and what unfolds between now and then. Well, I think his image is tarnished a bit. Governing tends to do that to you. There's not many prime ministers who at the end of their first term of office uh, haven't taken a few hits, and I think that that's true as well for him. He was very popular, but it's good to remember that, that he only got 39% of the vote in the last election, which was the same vote that Stephen Harper, the previous prime minister, got in 2011. So very popular with certain segments of the population, especially younger Canadians, more educated Canadians, higher popularity with women. But the Conservatives held on to their base in Canada. They got 32% of the vote, and it's a very solid base from which they can build on. So the Liberals don't have a lot of room for falling in the polls because right now the Conservatives are slightly ahead because of this issue with the SNC-Lavalin scandal. But, you know, there's still quite a while to the election. The budget will probably change the channel. We'll see what happens. I'm still of the opinion that the Liberals are still situated in a good position to win power again. It may be a minority rather than majority. The advantage they have is both major opposition leaders both the leader of the Conservatives and the leader of the New Democratic Party are new. They haven't really made much of an impression on the Canadian public to this point. So that's a big advantage, obviously. They'll have to show themselves to be a viable alternative to the current government and prime minister during the election campaign. So they have to step up to the plate and be able to do that. And, and at the moment, both of those leaders have lower approval ratings, much lower approval ratings and recognition ratings compared to Trudeau. Some people think this is a pseudo-scandal. The reason they're saying is, well, there was no money involved. There's no bribing of a government official. There was no sex involved. So, in effect, there isn't any conflict of interest here. But other people see it as a way of subverting justice. May I share my own view on this? I don't understand why we need a trial. Actually, I think the government's position is perfectly reasonable because I think there's the chance, and they've raised this with the Attorney General, which was considered improper, that 9,000 people in Canada might lose their jobs, that SNC-Lavalin might be scooped up by a foreign company that the company might move to London, where it's recently set up an office, that Canada would lose this major engineering firm. Now, if SNC is prosecuted, what will be the conclusion? You can't put a company in jail. You can only find its officers, the people who have done wrong. Well, none of those people are with the company anymore. So they have a completely new management, and they have a completely new board of directors. So at the end of the day, whether there's a deferred prosecution agreement or not, and with a deferred prosecution agreement, they would end up paying a fine. They're going to end up paying a fine one way or the other. But the optics are very bad for the government. And that's what people focus on.
many stories are inside the Beltway and what we in the political circles and reporters think about, we're just basically talking to ourselves or to a certain group of people who love politics. But this story has gone out of the bubble. It's on Main Street. Everybody's talking about it. The pollsters are registering with people. If you're on a bus, you can hear people talking about it. You're in a coffee shop. It is a serious problem for this government because it's gone onto the street. And when a, a political controversy hits Main Street, you've got yourself trouble. Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Canada's Globe and Mail. You also heard Dr James Bickerton from St Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, Professor Nelson Wiseman from the University of Toronto, and Joan Bryden, reporter with the Canadian Press. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.